Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Jacqueline Thornhill, and I am honored to serve as the 97th president. Our club focuses on youth, children's literacy, and we support our active duty military and veterans. We meet on Thursdays at Lowry's at noon. For more information, please visit LasVegasRotary.com or follow us on Facebook at Las Vegas Rotary Club founded 1923, where you can watch a live stream of our weekly meetings. Please enjoy this week's speaker. Good afternoon, fellow Rotarians. Uh, it's my honor and privilege uh, to introduce my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Michelle Paul. Uh, Michelle is uh, the director and uh, leader of our uh, uh, practice uh, program on campus. The practice is a uh, community-oriented uh, 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 center that provides uh, psychological services and other uh, important uh, uh, needs to serve our community. As you know, Las Vegas has a big challenge with uh, uh, mental health and uh, the provision of mental health practitioners. So one of the neat things about Michelle and her team is that they're training the next generation of mental health practitioners that are going to serve in our community. Uh, Michelle has won numerous awards as a leader in her field here in our state uh, and is well respected around the country for the work and contributions that she does in educating the future of, uh, mental, he of mental health practitioners here in our state. So you can read her bio uh, in the uh, uh, wheel. I don't want to get into that. So without further ado, Michelle, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. I just get myself organized here. Well, firstly, I want to thank, um, well, certainly the Rotary Club of Las Vegas, but folks that represent Nevada system of higher education. My people are here, <laughs> so I want to say hello. Um, Carolyn Sparks also welcomed me when I walked into the room, which is a very warm welcome. Thank you so much. Um, anybody else that I miss? Of course, Kim, you all know Kim. I think Kim's super popular around here. Uh, any, did I miss anyone else? Okay. Well, the last time I was here, I was um, honored and humbled to accept a donation to the practice. And I wanted to let you know that that donation went to towards keeping our doors open this summer. We train graduate students in mental and behavioral health services, and graduate students aren't always funded through the summer, so in order to keep up our um, services, because mental health needs don't take a break during the academic summers off, right? So we have to keep our doors open, and your donation went a long way in helping us provide services to about 120 people through the summer months and to fund about 10 graduate students who would otherwise have to do other activities to make money, like wait tables or something, which is, um, you allowed them to keep their training going. So I'm, I'm going to kick off with a little video about the practice. And the pr I apologize in advance because the video is, was made um, to uh, appeal to folks to give to the practice. Well, you all have already given. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to acknowledge that, certainly if anybody is inspired 
to uh, give some more. We have UNLV Rebels Give um, is coming up in a week or two, um, and we're certainly involved in that project. But the I, I show the video because it really captures what the practice is and what we do and why we exist. And then from there, I'm going to go. To, I'm going to talk about our our topic for the day. All right. The data is clear. One in five of us has a mental health condition. And if you're not struggling, you probably know someone who is. Yet, most Americans lack access to care. And here in Nevada, we rank last nationally for access to quality mental health care, despite having a great need for it. We don't have enough mental health care providers. We lack affordable options. We operate under old training and care models. All of this limits our ability to overcome what is undeniably a mental health crisis in our state. Nevada's been coping with this problem for too long, which is why in 2012, UNLV's Colleges of Education and Liberal Arts came together to form The Practice, a partnership for research, assessment, counseling, therapy, and innovative clinical education. The Practice at UNLV is a community mental health clinic focused on state-of-the-art training and quality mental health service. Through innovative interdisciplinary training in best practices, we are increasing access to quality mental health care now and developing the next generation workforce to serve our community tomorrow. Since opening our doors, we are proud to have served over 2,000 people in need and trained over 150 students. Because the practice was founded through a spirit of collaboration, it is uniquely situated to become a leader in providing all Nevadans the world-class mental health care they deserve. But we cannot do our part in solving Nevada's mental health crisis without your help. With your donation, we can fully realize our vision to become a national model of excellence in mental health research, training, responsive treatment, and community outreach. There's no greater example of the practice's capacity to respond than our activity following the mass shooting of October 1st, 2017. The largest assault of its kind in American history occurred less than two miles from the UNLV campus. Virtually everyone in Las Vegas was impacted by this tragedy. The practice answered the call to offer help, hope, and healing. In the immediate hours following the shooting, we administered psychological first aid to victims. We distributed educational materials to guide teachers and parents on how to talk with children after a mass shooting. We trained our staff in psychological first aid and recovery and provided free services to those affected then and now. And we responded to countless local, national, and international media requests seeking to understand more about the psychological impacts of this community trauma and what to expect as we all heal together. Your generous support for the practice not only ensures our ability to continue these essential services, but to grow. Your dollars allow us to keep our doors open year-round, fill in the gaps when services are not covered, supervise and train more students, strengthen our infrastructure, and expand our community engagement. When we are mentally well, we feel satisfied in our relationships, competent in our work, and able to enjoy life as it comes. We take the day-to-day -day hassles in stride and we stand resilient in the face of stress and trauma. When we are mentally healthy, our community cannot help but flourish and thrive. The practice exists because Nevada deserves to be better than last. We think it's time. 
time to invest in the research, training, and care that it will take. We think it's time to make mental health a priority, don't you? Thank you. So we can pop up my slides. So what I'm going to turn to now is the topic that was um, noted in the uh, wheel. Did I get that right? Um, it says suicide. We're going to talk about suicide prevention and what every single one of us in the room can do to open a dialogue with each other about how to reduce the numbers of deaths, the number of deaths by suicide in our communities. So let me just pop through here. The practice, as I mentioned before, is a community mental health clinic. It serves not just the campus, but the entire community. We have clients from ages two and up. And we have brought together, in partnership, two colleges, two departments, and four training programs. Colleges of Liberal Arts and Education, we have the psychology department, clinical psychology, doctoral students train, and in the Department of Counseling, School Psychology, and Human Services, we have school psychology, EDS, and PhD, and mental health counseling. Do I have any other fellow mental and behavioral health providers here? Or? One other. What's your area? And your discipline? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. So we're very proud of um, that partnership that we've created because it takes uh, connection, as you all know. Um, it takes connectedness and building connections to solve big problems. Right? So I'm not going to reiterate this too much. We are in a mental health crisis. We are 51st in the nation for access to mental health care despite the need. And uh, the practice exists to increase access to care, affordable quality care now, uh, while also training the next generation workforce. So for example, in Nevada, there are only 530 psychologists licensed in the state, and that puts us at about 47th in the nation for psychologists per capita. And the numbers are similarly uh, poor for other uh, mental and behavioral health disciplines in the state. So one of the things that we do with our students is we train them in the problem of uh, death by suicide. So I'm going to talk about that today with you all and talk a little bit about um, suicide risk, particularly in the veteran population. Do we have veterans or folks who have a veteran in, our fa in their family? Several veterans here. Thank you for your service. And I imagine many of us have relatives um, or neighbors who also served. So I'm going to talk about them as a subpopulation, but the broader messages are going to apply no matter which population you're working with or, or spending time with. So suicide is a public health issue. Um, since 1999, the overall rate has increased by 25%. And in 2016, it was the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Veterans are 20% more likely to 
um, die by suicide compared to uh, their civilian adult counterparts. As of September 2017, 10% of Nevada's adult population was a veteran, so approximately 218,000 veterans in, in our state. So specific to Nevada, uh, in Nevada, we have the 11th highest rate of suicide in the nation at 19.3 deaths by suicide per 100,000. That's actually improved. We used to be at the 10th place, and last year we were the only state actually to have an overall reduction in our suicide risk in the United States, although we had a spike in our youth suicide rate. We're still trying to sort that out. It's the eighth leading cause of death for Nevadans, and the second leading cause of death for our youth ages 15 to 24. Veterans comprise an estimate of 23% of completed suicides, which would translate in, our, in Nevada numbers to about four to five deaths by suicide in our veteran population per 100,000. And if we have about 218,000 veterans, you can see that that's about 10 deaths by suicide, completed suicides per year. That doesn't include attempts or thoughts of suicide. So sometimes looking at those numbers alone, those static numbers, um, leave us feeling a little helpless, or at least they do for me sometimes. And they don't tell us a lot about what to do. So what I want to share with you is uh, a model of uh, suicide that actually opens doors and helps us think about what to do, and I think is actually a very optimistic model because there are pl there's plenty we can do when you think about this model. And it's not complicated, which is also helpful. Sometimes big problems can be daunting because they're so multi-determined. But in, in the case of suicide, we can break it down into sort of three levels. Pain hopelessness, connected it, connectedness, and suicide capacity. So the first step to thinking, even thinking about suicide as an option or as a solution to a problem is pain. And by pain, I mean broadly defined and really specific to the person. So it can be physical pain, it can be emotional pain. It basically is the experience that day-to-day -day life is punishing in some way, shape, or form. And you have to have a sense of hopelessness that that pain is really never going to go away. You don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. So when you have that combination, you're going to have an increased risk of suicide because the mind, the inner private experience, will bring up the possible solution, which is escape from pain, which nobody wants to feel pain day in and day out. And so the thought of suicide as a possible out or just bubble can bubble up for many, many people. Secondly, is connectedness. 
So what do I mean by connectedness? Again, also defined by the individual person. What you feel connected to. Do you feel like you have a place? Do you feel like you have a sense of belonging, whether that's in your job or with your family or a sense of meaning or purpose in your community? So if you have a sense of connectedness, that keeps you invested in life. And connectedness is really what serves as the protective factor or the buffer between pain and an act, a serious act that is meant to end one's life. And then the last step is to be capable of attempting suicide. And what do I mean by that? So there are many factors that increase one's capacity for suicide. Our entire biology is, is, is wired to survive. So we know that even people who, if there's, like, there's video footage of people who have attempted to jump from the Golden Gate Bridge, for example, even those folks at the very last second, their bodies will try to reach to, to survive. So how do, you, how do we overcome that biological wiring to survive? A lot of people think that suicide is something that is an, impu an impulsive thing. But in fact, people who make a serious attempt and, um, and I guess I'll stop there because even a serious, not all serious attempts end in suicide, but folks who make a serious attempt have built up the capacity so they've become desensitized to exposure to things like, uh, or to death, right? And that's one thing. And then the other thing that increases capacity is access to lethal means. So we can work with folks to um, reduce the capacity for suicide, and I'll talk about that in a minute too. Questions so far? Well, it's hard to know, right? I mean, an accidental overdose. Did they mean to imbibe so much as to kill themselves, right? That's the question. What do you mean about how, oh, the percentage of people who die by accidental overdose? I don't have those, I don't have that at the top of my head or in my statistics right now, no. no. I'm just looking at that model and I'm, I'm thinking about uh, some of the people who, I don't know, suicide by cop or whatever, they've, they've, they've actually didn't just go in a room and overdose or whatever, but they, they went out and they did something horrible, probably knowing that uh, they were uh, not going to end up alive out of it. And, you know, it, it, it seems like there's a different model for that. I don't know. How does that kind of fit that uh, where they have to go out in a blaze of glory and uh, more important for them to die than for whatever it is that drove them to that? 
I think it fits in the model very similarly. They would have to go, they would have to overcome what are, would be a typical fear for most of us to know, put themselves in a situation uh, that they know has a high likelihood of not go ending well. And what kind of pain must one be experiencing to knowingly put yourself in a situation where you will be at the receiving end of a lethal, you know, act. Does that answer your question? Driving them is, is not just ending their pain or disconnecting from the world, but hurting others. And that's, I don't know, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be the same, same sort of driver if it's, well, sometimes pain can come in the form of anger, right? Right. And because usually because you feel as though you've been the victim of something and your pain is in, is anger, angry pain. And we can think of a wounded animal and sometimes wounded animals hide in the bushes and some lash out. I noticed you didn't have a breakdown between ages, but isn't there a concern about uh, higher suicide rates among teenagers? Yes, there, there is. Um, and let's see, I had it on the slide right earlier. What did I say? 15 to 24. Yeah. It's the second leading cause of death for our youth, 15 to 24. And that's 20, 22nd highest rate in the nation with 12 per 100,000. So if we think about the implications of that model. How are we doing on time, by the way? I just want to get a... I'm 12 minutes left or 12 minutes in? Okay. <laughs> So let's start, let's move towards being more optimistic here. Uh, the implications uh, based on that model are to reduce pain, increase hope, improve connectedness, and reduce capacity. So if we turn towards um, veteran populations. So what are sources of pain for veterans? We know that that population is at higher risk because they are more likely to have been exposed to traumatic losses. And they're also at increased risk for something called moral injury, which is the pain that's associated with either violating um, one's own moral uh, sense of uh, justice or moral code, or been exposed to that violation. And what's associated with uh, moral injury are feelings like guilt, shame, anger, a loss of meaning, a loss of trust from the sense of betrayal that one experiences, and then isolation. And I am sure that there are other sources of pain that I'm not touching on, but these are primary ones. And when we think, now I want to mention something here since you asked the question, I'm focusing my talk on our veteran population, but if we think about the question regarding youth, Sometimes people wonder, well, what's, what do kids have to be w uh, upset about, right? 
They're 17. They have no idea what could get come their way. Um, but you have to think about what are the potential sources of pain that our youth have today that are maybe different from what we had. Um, I have some ideas about that, and maybe we can talk about that too if we have a little time. But in any given population where you're thinking about the risk of suicide and suicide being a potential outcome, what you want to get in touch with is not whether they're a veteran or whether they're 15 to 24 years old, but what's their potential source of pain and suffering? And connect to that. And figure out if there are ways that you can help them relieve or ameliorate that pain. So for our veterans, and here's where I would open it up to you all, how do we open the conversation to hope and help and I start that off because I also want to mention one big myth that a lot of people hold. And that is, I can't talk about suicide with someone because I'm afraid if I bring it up, I'll put it in their mind as an option. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. You are not going to put in someone's mind the option of killing themselves. It, if, if it's there, it's there. You, you bringing it up and asking them directly have you ever thought of killing yourself? Um, they will, it'll not be something that you just popped into their head. They will have been thinking about it and they will be open to the conversation. Talking about it openly, minimizing stigma and shame around it is one of the ways in which we're going to um, decrease those numbers. So opening up to you all, how do we reduce pain? How do we increase hope? How do we improve connection and sense of belongingness for our friends, our, our neighbors? Have them join, Roy. Like, seriously, no kidding. You got wine, you got cigars, you got costumes. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, but, but. You know, you've got so many opportunities to belong and to connect to a global purpose. Uh, I think that that absolutely, you all sort of hold the model here for increasing belongingness, connection, higher purpose, higher meaning. Jim, you were going to... My son-in-law, he uh, was in a lot of pain, and so he was using opioids to uh, take care of it. And one of the problems we had with him is when he'd ever get together in a family gathering like Thanksgiving or Christmas, he would purposefully try to disconnect or make you disconnect from him. So I guess he was looking forward to uh, overdosing or whatever. So one of the things you gotta be concerned about if, if somebody is misbehaving in any way that is in any kind of pain, you've got to establish that connectivity and keep it, you know, and work at it because sometimes it's really hard, especially when they get aggressive. Michelle, Absolutely true. Uh, I wondered, yes. is, is illegal drug usage a factor in the high percentage of youth between 15 and 24? That, that's really a high number of deaths. I think that that probably is a factor. So that speaks to the um, that increasing the capacity for acting, um, 
you know, acting on suicidal thoughts. Because when we are abusing substances, we are more likely to make an impulsive decision. Right? So I would not doubt that substance abuse um, and addiction plays a role in su increased suicide rates, probably through that fourth level of reducing capacity or increasing the capacity for acting. And right, with your, you know, with the example you gave, it sometimes can be hard to make a connection and reach out. That sometimes the level of shame and emotional pain is so great that paradoxically, people push us away when we try to make those connections. And so you have to, and they kind of co-create a self-fulfilling prophecy of I'm, I'm terrible, I'm a horrible human being, nobody would want to be connected to me, so I isolate and I push away. And then most of us are like, okay, fine, you don't want to connect, so we pull, we pull away. And then that reinforces the belief that they're shame, shameful and don't belong. So you really have to resist that urge, that's true. Dr. Paul, thank you for bringing this subject to us uh, because I know it's all around us. It struck me when you started your presentation that you uh, deal with people as young as two. Mm -hmm. Having a degree in psychology myself and having studied child psychology, uh, child development, I'm wondering how a child that young could commit suicide. Oh, well, I, let me, when I said we work with people age two and up, I was just saying that in the mental health clinic where our students train, we serve the community at large. And so we see kids that are two and all the way up, but the problems that present to us, I, was, I didn't mean to imply that we have two-year-olds who are coming to us with suicidal ideation. Having said that, though, once children reach that developmental level to understand the meaning of death and to understand that maybe they want to disappear, you can have children as young as five, six, say, I want to die, I wish I were dead. What they, and they can maybe not completely understand the finality of that, but they do feel pain. They're hurting in some way. They're being made to feel little and disconnected and not okay. Sometimes that says, I'm a bad boy or I'm a bad girl, right? And nobody, and I don't feel like I'm accepted or appreciated or loved. And so then you can have those thoughts pop up as young as that. And it doesn't mean they're not serious. It does mean that they're feeling enough pain to want to be gone, at least in that moment. Okay. I heard you're a taskmaster and really good with time, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, this subject is timely for me. Uh, I lost, I'm right here, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, I lost a neighbor two weeks ago oh. uh, to a suicide. Mm -hmm. um, he was a veteran, uh, mm -hmm. and as many of our veterans were, he w was exposed to Agent Orange mm -hmm. and had a very devastating cancer, as many do. Mm -hmm. um, much to what you uh, described, he planned it, made sure his widow was, you know, taken care of and everything was 
set, and then he sent her to the store to buy ice cream, and he shot himself in the backyard mm -hmm. right after he called the police to come get him so she wouldn't find him. Um, but my question is really, there are so many veterans that were exposed to that experience and have devastating cancers, very painful cancers. Mm -hmm. Do you see that in your statistic, that uh, suicide is an option for them, that they are using that as an option? I don't know the specific statistics for different populations of veterans. I'd have to go deeper into that data. It probably exists because they, they have, um, if you go to the U.S. Uh, Veterans, um, Veterans Administration website, they, ha they have large-scale studies uh, where they can compare different age groups or different um, branches of the military, uh, different... Um, wars they were in or other involvement and compare those rates to see maybe to see what the you know what might be predicting higher rates in certain subpopulations than others but you're describing that example of that extreme physical pain and perhaps I only can guess but I can I think I can reasonably guess a sense of um, burdensomeness right and Part of feeling like feeling disconnected is also you feel like a burden on top of it. And so the calculus is, you know, the mathematical equation is I'm more valuable dead than I am alive. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear about that. And I'm sorry to hear if suicide has touched any of your lives. Um, and an accidental overdose too. Um, certainly I've, my family has been affected by the opio opioid crisis in that way as well. So I, I can't imagine that any one of us hasn't had some connection to these concerns. So I appreciate your attention. I'm, I have brochures and business cards and I'll stay a little bit longer. And thank you so much for your time. Dr. Michelle, thank you for a very timely topic. We're all very interested in what's going on, particularly with our veterans. I'd like to present you with our Share What You Can Award, which means we are giving a donation to the local USO in your name. Thank you. Thank you very much. In the words of a woman I most admire, Amelia Earhart, actually played her last week, no kind action ever stops with itself. One kind action leads to another. Let's leave today building connections, taking kind action, serving one another, and rejoicing in the fellowship of Rotary. Meeting adjourned. We hope you enjoyed the latest podcast from the Las Vegas Rotary Club. For more information about future meetings, membership, and our local service projects, please visit lasvegasrotary.com. Now please go out, take action, and connect the world.